Welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems, our podcast. Today's episode will be the last one for season one, and it has been an exhilarating season. Uh, we've talked to such interesting people, dissecting, discussing some of the most complex problems in the world. And we have had so many terrific ideas that have informed us and have challenged us to look beyond the problem and reach for solutions. We will be coming back in the fall of season two. During our next season, we plan to have a special mini series on racism, diversity and inclusion. The horrific and tragic hate killings of the Muslim family in London, Ontario, and the discovery of the 215 indigenous children at the residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, is further evidence that we need to work harder on these issues, delve into solutions and make change. Yes, Senator, I, you know, I'm really, really looking forward to, you know, looking into that and doing a mini series on on anti-racism and diversity and inclusion. You know, it's a really important topic that we just really have to get involved in here. But but also, I just wanted to say, Senator, since this is our last uh, podcast for the year, it's really been a pleasure to work with you on this podcast. You know, as political staffers, we often don't get seen or heard. You know, our jobs are essentially to amplify your voice or a member of parliament's voice. So it's really wonderful that you've included me on this. You've provided oh. me the space to have a voice, to express my opinion. So I'm really looking forward to continuing this journey with you. Paul, and it's been my privilege. I know that I could not do my job without my team, including you. And I wish we had more opportunities to give political staff voice. We plan to continue to do so. Today's episode, which is the last one in our series, we are talking about how big Canada should be. Uh, looking far into the future, in fact, uh, to the beginning of 2100, can we aspire to be a nation of 100 million? This proposal, has made many headlines recently because it is provocative and a big number uh, for Canadian standards. After all, we are still only a population of 38 million. So it does need a thorough thinking through. Will Canadians support it? Will it bring prosperity to all Canadians? And if yes, how do we actually go about doing it? Yeah, Senator, this is actually, a, you know, a very provoking and interesting topic for sure. You know, uh, I've seen a lot of chatter on Twitter and other forums about it. People discussing about, you know, is there enough land mass? Do we have enough size to be able to do this? You know, where are all the people going to go? And obviously, you know, we have an aging population, so we need to think about immigration on, a, on as a way to deal with that aging population. Right, so let's delve into this proposal as we talk to Goldie Hyder and Lisa Lalonde. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. On today's episode, we're going to grapple with one of the most important policy questions that Canada faces. What is the right size of Canada? How much should our population grow? How can we retain both cohesion and sustainability and, and prosperity? We have two wonderful guests to lead us through this conversation. Goldie Hyder, 
who is the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. He was previously the president and CEO of Hill and Norton Strategies. And sometime way back in the past, he used to work as director of policy and chief of staff to the right honorable Joe Clark. Um, Lisa Lalonde is the CEO of the Century Initiative. She was previously the executive director of the Moet Center's not-for-profit research hub, and, but has a decade of experience in creating, implementing, evaluating affordable housing initiatives that can be scaled in Quebec, partnering to introduce indigenous housing programs, and is generally dedicated taking things that work in small ways and taking them to scale. And we're talking about scale here because we're talking about the right sizing of Canada's population. So thank you both for taking the time to speak to us. Let me start with some full disclosure here for my listeners. I am a director of the Century Initiative. Uh, Lisa Lalonde is the executive director and Goldie is on the board. And we think that this question of the right sizing of the population of Canada is an important one to think about, especially since we're not thinking about what's going to happen today or tomorrow, but we're thinking over the long term. So my question to our guests is, is Canada ready for this kind of growth? And if not, how do we get ready for it? Um. You know, I think that's a really great question. And normally when we talk about uh, Century Initiative, I always like to start with why. Why are we talking about population growth right now, particularly in this context? Uh, and really what we want to convey is that the size of our population is directly tied to our prosperity. And what we mean by that is that as our population ages, we have fewer people in the workforce. And what that means is we have fewer tax dollars to pay for the things that we care about, like you know, our schools or healthcare. And these are really important pieces to allow us to sustain our quality of life, not only for ourselves, but future generations. So it's important for us to really talk about these issues right now, because we believe that Canada is at a crossroads. Our population is aging, our workforce is shrinking, we're having fewer children. There was a, a recent report from Statistics Canada that, uh, that showed that we've seen the lowest population growth in over 100 years. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes when I speak, I often get asked, well, isn't shrinking our population a good thing? Uh, you know, isn't it, is that a bad thing that we're actually getting smaller? Uh, but again, I go back to the point, which is the size of our population is directly related to our prosperity. So if we don't increase it, key industries will grow more slowly, they'll be less dynamic, will be less competitive, and have less influence on the world stage. And so then the next question is, uh, what is the right size? What, what size should our population be? For Century Initiative, we advocate for a population, uh, growing our population to 100 million by 2100. And, you know, as we talk about that number, we've set this North Star goal. But I think what's really important is not just the number, it's how we get there. We need to design a Canada for the future. We need to future-proof Canada so that the economic opportunities, the opportunities we have as Canadians now, our prosperity is secured for future generations. If we don't do it, and we don't think about these things now, it'll be too late. So 
as Century Initiative has put this idea into the marketplace of ideas, there have been people who've, who've supported the idea and, and there are detractors always. The detractors, in particular the economists, say that yes, increasing the size of our population will increase in growth, uh, but without increasing GDP per capita, it will only increase inequality. And what is your response to this uh, rather serious, I would say, uh, objection? Yeah, this ahead, is, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a complicated question and I am certainly not an economist, mm -hmm. but um, but I will I will I will speak to it in a way that I understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, a, a, an important point is that, uh, you know, it's not just about the number. It's about it's about economic immigration and it's about having the right programs and services in place to support and enable entrepreneurship and innovation uh, to address the, the the talent gap that we have in Canada. And I'm also just, again, given my past experience with MOIT, um, GDP alone should never be the sole measure of prosperity. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why Century Initiative introduced a national scorecard on Canada's growth and prosperity a couple of months ago, because it really looks at the issues more broadly. It uh, takes a holistic approach to a very complicated question of how do you actually, how do you actually work towards a long-term plan for prosperity in the country, and what are all the different factors that influence it? But I will answer your question. Uh, there is broad consensus that immigration grows the economy overall. There's been lots of studies. There was a recent uh, study done by Scotia Bank, uh, the Conference Board of Canada. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's it's planned to come out today. They've released a report. Uh, that looks at the different immigration scenarios um, and has determined that there would be, I believe it's uh, uh, a significant increase anyway in, in economic and uh, GDP growth through high immigration scenarios. Um, and while immigration increases GDP overall, we know that immigrants typically earn less than non-immigrants. So um, it can increase, uh, it can sorry, reduce GDP per capita. And some have raised concerns about the concept of growing the population at a faster rate than we're growing the economic pie. And I, I think you and I have had this conversation before about now. But I would say that a decrease in uh, GDP per capita, per capita does not necessarily mean an increase in inequality. It means that per person there's less wealth, but that doesn't necessarily determine the the degree to which that wealth is is dispersed or or the degree to which it's uh, concentrated. And I think, you know, it's more important to the spirit of your question um, that, you know, when we look at past modeling that showed a decrease, uh, a reduction in GDP per capita, it's important to note that it's based on past data. And this past data shows that there is a gap between when newcomers arrive and when they have commensurate employment opportunities. And so we see this income gap as an opportunity, untapped potential, untapped talent and mm -hmm. skills. And I think that Canada must do better at supporting newcomers uh, in addressing that, that income gap and also working with employers to overcome conscious or unconscious uh, concerns about Canadian experience. 
And I think from Century's perspective, it's really important to emphasize that it's also about helping everyone in Canada reach their full potential in the workforce. Absolutely. Uh, so Goldie, my question follows on the same line that there are objectors and there are objectors uh, in, in big cities which benefit enormously from the onslaught of immigrants who come to Montreal, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, you know, they contribute to the workforce, they buy houses, they send their kids to school, the kids go on to be leaders. We know that whole narrative, but there is a pushback because of the, the attraction for a few big cities, which results in housing envy, the crowding out of affordable housing uh, to sprawl. How, how do we manage this radical increase? I'm not going to call it radical. I actually don't think it's radical. It's more incremental increase over the next 80 plus years in immigration. How do we manage that so that these divisions locally do not arise? There's a lot there to unpack. Um, let me let me just first comment on the point that you even inadvertently used the phrase radical for this 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 call. It's it's anything but. And I think what yeah. we need to look at is our history. So much of the conversation we're having now, the question I would ask is where would we be without immigration as a country? Where would we be without the number of people who've come in? Uh, you know, size matters in, in today's world. And if we were, you know, at 10 million people because we didn't let anybody in. You know, I'm not sure Canada's in the G7 or has the GDP or the, or the prosperity that it does today. So you look at what we've been able to do with immigration, with both economic considerations, but also social considerations. I mean, this is an experiment, this country, the idea that we're going to give people all this liberty and freedom and the opportunities that are here. You got to work at it. And what I've seen here is historically, yeah, we've had some blemishes in our record. Canada is not pure in terms of its history and how immigrants have been treated. And to some, some degree, there continues to be issues issues, both with immigrants and also indigenous people to this day. So we've got work to do. But overall, the record of the last 100 years is one of tremendous growth um, in population, which has produced the kind of Canada that we have today, a relevant Canada, a Canada that 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 um, is heard and listened to in different parts of the world because of who we are as a people, the kind of society that we've built. And yes, the economic influence of being a two trillion dollar economy was all built with that history. So if you look back the last hundred years or so from 1918 till 2018 as an example you know our, our the multiple of our population went up over 3.7 times to get from where we are today to 100 million is actually a 2.7 multiple so i consider it not radical i consider it unambitious it's actually very achievable easily it, it can be done um, but what we have to do to get there to your question is maintain public support uh, ensure to lisa's point that those who are coming here are seen to be um, value adders, that they are people who are um, going to help the economy grow and that they're going to help Canada remain prosperous. They're going to contribute to the social fabric of this country. They're going to contribute to our, in a from the taxes perspective, they're going to, um, um, you know, help add 
add a tax base to sustain our social programs that we become accustomed to. And, and, and social programs, by the way, that desperately need influx of capital. Um, our infrastructure around this country is aging and crumbling. Who's going to pay for that if we're shrinking, right? And so to me, it's not just the economic argument. It's also the social argument. And it's the it's the promise of this country. This is a country that made made this, this uh, journey its mission. Well, let's execute it to its full potential. Uh, and, and we think that, that the support for this is there. Uh, Canadians are sensible people. They know and they understand that, that you know, immigration leads to economic, um, uh, economic growth. I acknowledge, however, there are naysayers. There are people out there who say too much, too soon, too fast, don't want to do this. Why are we, why are we doing this? Um, what I would say to them is it's important that we acknowledge that there are people in the country who are here now who are underutilized, whether they're immigrants because their foreign skills haven't been acknowledged, whether they're people with disabilities or Indigenous communities or women for a variety of reasons, including the lack of childcare, which we hope gets addressed soon here. Um, let's make sure that all of those people are fully utilized. And you know what you will find, and I can say this from the perspective of employers, we still need more people. We still need more people to, to make sure that our economy is humming at full potential. So we feel that, that Canadians in an, in, a, in, a, in an honest conversation will come to the same conclusion. And, you know, if I if I may build on that, Ratna, um, you know, I think one of your questions touched on housing affordability. And I think, you know, if you're in Canada right now and you're a young person trying to look at getting a house, it, it's really challenging and it could feel impossible. Uh, and so it's often, you know, a question I get when I'm talking about Century is, what about housing affordability? What about it sprawl? What What's the impact on the environment? And I think that, you know, there's been some really great investments from the federal government with the National Housing Strategy, the Rapid Housing Initiative. I think they'll help uh, certainly address some of the issues. Uh, there's a role for business to play in this as well. Scotiabank released, uh, an, uh, released an announcement in April about a significant investment with CMHC to address affordability. I think that will certainly help, but I think one of the underlying pieces that we try to communicate when we're talking about Century is the need to think long-term. So think beyond the next business cycle, beyond the next election cycle. How do we build a city to accommodate this growth? And you know, our chair gave a, a really great example at a, a recent Globe and Mail event about you know, if you're in Toronto and you're at Eglinton, you're looking at this never-ending construction and now building a tunnel under the under the street. You know, imagine if that had been you know planned 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Imagine if we had planned with that future in mind. What what opportunities would be ahead? How much would that have saved us? And so, when we're thinking about growth, how do we plan for the future? How do we plan for what we may may need 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? I want to I want to just um, add to what Lisa just said and to also address your earlier question, which I think I this part I missed, which is um, how do we make sure that everybody doesn't live in Toronto? <laughs> this has, yes. in essence yeah. is your question. Yeah. And, and I think their policy matters. I think there we have to lead with policy examples to encourage people to to, to move to, to move to other places. You can give them, you know, tax deferrals or tax holidays or other mechanisms by which to say, look, if you move here, there's some incentive for you to, to move here. So we need to experiment with that. And government recently did a pilot project out in Nova Scotia for about 5,000 people. And I think what you'll find there is many of those people, once they get there and if they settle in, if they find their employment and so forth, they don't want to move to a place where they have to sit in the car for two hours to get to work, right? And and the other thing that I think we also have to consider right now, um, Senator, is this. We have to assess what is the real consequence uh, of COVID 
uh, on the on the on the issues of employers and employees, right? Because one of the things we're all talking about right now is this whole work from home notion. Well, if you can work from home, if you're in Toronto and you can work from Markham, I suppose you're in Toronto, you can work from Manila. Now, on the other hand, if you are in Markham and you want to offer your services not just to somebody in Toronto but also to somebody in New Delhi, you could. And so now you have to ask yourself: How is COVID impacting where people choose to live, uh, where they work? where they pay their taxes. Because suddenly, if you're you're remote working in a different way, you're no longer interested necessarily in living in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. And we're already seeing it. Uh, I was just looking at a chart the other day, what's happening in the United States. The migration outwards from the major cities is phenomenal. And that's the same thing that's happening in Canada. One of the reasons that we're finding the housing prices are exploding in all kinds of different places, including places that are an hour away from a city or two hours away from a city because people don't want to come in, right? And then you've got the whole issue about infrastructure as well. How is this? How is COVID going to change our behaviors? Are people going to be jumping on high-speed rail or on, on subways and planes and all that? Are they going to do some different different types of patterns? This is a moment where I think we should be looking at how has COVID impacted the, the changes that could be coming and are they short term or do they have longer term implications? I don't have those answers. It's just things that I'm certainly thinking about. Okay. Well, and if I, if I, I just wanted to maybe dive in just quickly on, on and, and, and you might be touching this a little bit because I think I think that's a very important issue about how do we spread immigration across the country? Uh, you know, Goldie, you had mentioned about the pilot project in Atlanta, Canada, but but the federal government's even talked about pilot projects across Canada to have a, a better disbursement of immigration, you know, around the country into small, medium-sized towns and cities to be able to have people not just in those three big cities of Vancouver, uh, Toronto, and Montreal, you know, immigrating there. But I'm wondering about, you mentioned talking about the economic incentives for people to move into those areas. What about the social incentives? What can we do to build in social incentives for people to move in? Because one of the issues, or one of the reasons why obviously a lot of immigrants move to the big cities, because they already have community networks established in those areas that they can fit seamlessly as they come into the country, a new country, and to be able to have the networks around to, to help them thrive. Is there a way, is there anything the government or, or we could be doing to help you know, build the social network and the social situation in small and medium town cities to be able to have that better disbursement, uh, you know, throughout the country. My answer might surprise you. Um, I, I'm not sure this is necessarily what government should be doing. Uh, I think that, that making sure that we have the right framework uh, for people to come, uh, to take full advantage and, and can contribute and, you know, benefit from our education system, from, from our, you know, from the society in which they're living. Uh, what I find is, is that those networks form and you can start creating, you know, the, the environment in which you say, oh, look, it's time for us to open up a synagogue or it's time for us to open up a temple or once that, that, that critical mass is achieved. I don't think a government needs to, to do that per se. Um, I think the key is to make sure that we don't mislead immigrants um, and or, or like we have to make sure that the promises that we're making, the commitments that we're making, that you can come to Canada, you can move around in Canada, you can work in Canada, your credentials are a fundamental issue here that's causing many of the problems. How many immigrants? are grossly underutilized. So to the earlier point that Lisa was saying about per capita, I think that's part of the reason. 
we have underutilized immigration potential because we are not addressing the, the issue of professional bodies largely around foreign skills accreditation. Because if, you know, the person who's a doctor driving a cab, the infamous story, well, you know, obviously they're making less money than they should. But if they were a doctor, they would actually be at the other end of the spectrum, which would be over contributing uh, to an adding value uh, to, the, to the GDP and increasing it rather than dropping it. So I think government's role is to look more at those policy questions where the the the, the policy is in is is inhibitive. It is not. It is it is restrictive. It is preventing a person to achieve their full potential. That's what we should be about. So social infrastructure, like things for disabilities or languages, ESL training, those kinds of things, I understand. But beyond that, from a social perspective, I think people can take care of that. Well, and, and building on that, I think that there's a role for the nonprofit sector, uh, certainly to help with some of this. Uh, they're already doing some phenomenal work with newcomers in their communities. Uh, and I think also learning from the lessons of these uh, initiatives in local communities, the municipal nominee program, the provincial nominee program, the Atlantic pilot. Um, the Walrus had a great article in April on this particular topic. So for those listeners who want to dive in, uh, it kind of looks at, you know, the good and the bad of those programs. But I think there's lessons to be drawn from there on what has worked in terms of, you know, what types of approaches and collaborations within the community that have helped newcomers succeed and want to stay. Uh, and we uh, we have a, a program called CI Twitter Views every Friday where we profile new ideas, new approaches, examples of success. And recently we had we had someone from Manitoba talk about their particular approach. It was a nonprofit where they had, I think it was over 80% retention rate when once people settled there. So I think there's lots of examples of when where it hasn't worked that we have to learn from and also where it has worked. So I, I think uh, Goldie identified uh, one of the most wicked problems in this constellation of immigration and attachment to the labor market, and that is the lack of uh, success uh, that we've uh, that we've had in moving people from uh, underemployment to employment in jobs that they were qualified for, but they can't get because their qualifications and credentials are not recognized. The federal government has, in fact, grabbed this by the horns in previous governments, and frankly, the results are nil because the decision-making powers do not lie with the government; they lie with the with the independent regulatory body. And I'm thinking of having a whole new podcast just on <laughs> that wicked problem. Uh, we'll park that for now and get on to yeah. some other issues. And and I don't think we can talk about immigration now without talking about it differently because the COVID crisis has changed things. I think Canadians understand and appreciate immigration and immigrant contribution to essential work in a different manner. Do you think that this offers uh, a, a proposal or a way forward for us to increase the population of Canada through immigration, not just through uh, the singular lens of skilled labor, but through the lens of, let's say, essential work. Could be doctors, could be truck drivers. So are we? is, is it time to put some of that language, high skills, low skills aside? And is it time to talk about the skills we need, which are essential skills. 
I couldn't agree with you more. It's certainly an issue that we've been discussing at the Business Council with our, our members, um, which is a cross-section of, of, uh, of industries across the country, and many of them are global companies. And so when I speak with them, it's not like they're all saying they're all looking for necessarily the PhDs. Of course, there's going to be a need for PhDs, and there's going to be a need for engineers and MBAs and all of that. But you know, there's also the technological needs. They need people who understand AI and, and data and coding and, and all of those things. But you also need it turns out a lot of essential workers, you know, that we undervalue to some extent in our immigration screening process. And so I've had this conversation with our minister saying, you need to take a look at how to modernize our application. And remember, our application is probably one of the most rigid, frankly, borderline discriminatory in the world. We call for everything. And I think it's one of the reasons that Canadians enjoy confidence in our immigration system. It's not a lottery. It's not just a free for all. We actually choose who we want and what we need. What we need to do now is take a look to your point, Senator, is how has this changed? What is it? What is it that we're going to need? And are we giving you know points for things that that are you know highly educated, but on the other hand, what we might really need are points for people with skills and apprenticeship uh, capacity and so forth. I think that that is a a change that's going to be taking place as we even culturally I can say look at our kids and it's like oh you must go to university and you must get a master's and you must get a PhD that's changing now I mean uh, my own daughter went to university and finished it all and said now dad I, I need to go to college to get some actual on-hands training to get some skills that I can go to work with and 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 I think that's the new reality that we may be dealing with and so our immigration system system including the screening of, of how we select people needs to reflect that so those people aren't being penalized in fact they should be rewarded I also think that it's really important for us to remind ourselves that we're in a global competition for talent, even as we're redefining what talent means in the country, that there are initiatives underway in the UK and the US to try to attra attract more people to their own countries. Other countries are experiencing shrinking populations. And so when we think about these issues, we have to also remind ourselves that we're, we are in a global competition for talent. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that's a really important consideration to what we're talking about right now. I'm going to throw the last question to Paul before we wrap up. Yeah, I was just going to ask, as we build back you know, from the pandemic, uh, and you know, immigration by the government has been a key driver that they want to you know increase their numbers this year and then have increasing numbers over the next few years. Is there anything in particular that you think that the government should be doing, federal government should be doing to to build back out of the pandemic to have a strong and functioning immigration system? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'll jump in, Goldie. Um, I think, you know, some of the uh, recent announcements that the government has made in terms of introducing new pathways to permanent residency, uh, transforming their administrative programs, the back end to make, you know, applying uh, easier, I think those will make a significant difference. For Century, what we're hoping for and what we're advocating for, and we're actually going to be working with the Conference Board of Canada in the coming months, just to make the case to not dial back uh, immigration targets to where they were before, but to maintain the levels that we're at now and to grow. We're demonstrating that we can meet those targets. Uh, there's lots that we can do in terms of supporting better outcomes for newcomers and helping those uh, Canadians who want to you know, have better outcomes and better connection to employment opportunities, but we can't dial back. It's really important for us. The number one message for us is let's keep growing from here. Thank you. I would just, I would just, can I just add quickly to that? Yeah. Or a couple of different points I wanted to make. I agree with everything that, that Lisa said. I think the government's on the right track. I think it's really important that, that the government um, work with provinces to link immigration to skills. 
as well. Those are connected issues, and I think it's an important. It used to be once upon a time. I think once upon a time, the immigration ministry used to be the skills and immigration minister. I'm going way back. I believe that's the case. I'm testing my memory here. Uh, but but there's a connection there that needs to be remade. That's one point. The second thing I would say from you asked about governments, I would say it's responsibility of all political parties, whether you're in government or not, to depoliticize this issue. We in the business community have been adamant to hold to account. You know, I mean, look, we just had an election a year and a half or so ago, and one party ran strongly against immigration. Its leader lost its seats and 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 won, and, and, and they won no seats at all. So there was a complete repudiation of that thing. But it doesn't mean that if we don't work hard at it, that if you become populist in nature, and particularly coming out of COVID. So my answer to the question, what can governments do, is less about immigration. It's more about, one, depoliticize things. Secondly, you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. What people, you, you can link this to is when people are working, they're happy. And if they're happy, they're not looking for scapegoating. They're not gonna blame somebody for why they're unhappy, right? And so jobs is gonna be key to that. And where do jobs come from? They come from a growth strategy. So one of the things that we felt very strongly about this last budget that was a miss is what's the plan? What's the growth strategy for the country? And you know, immigration is a piece of that, so I'm glad you got that part of it right. But there's a lot of other pieces in this puzzle that have not been fit together. And so we're really hoping that there's going to be a conversation coming out of COVID about what is that Canada's economic growth strategy? Yes, what's the role of immigration? But more broadly, how are we going to not just build back better, how are we going to be better and how are we going to do better so that we can maintain support for this beautiful place called Canada? Colleagues. Clearly, we have to have you back for the next <laughs> conversation on this, and we will schedule that. But in the meantime, thank you both for helping us scratch, I think, just scratch the, con the depth of this conversation. Fascinating. To our listeners, please be sure to check out our other podcasts and subscribe to them. And also, let me know who you would like to hear from, because, you know, there are interesting people all around the world, and I'm happy to try and source them for our wisdom. So we will continue to move the needle as we examine society's most wicked problems. Thank you all and goodbye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you.